God bless Brother Miller as I take up the uh, Sunday school offer. Praise the Lord, everyone. As always, it's good to be in the house of God. Grateful for what God is doing. I am not deserving of his blessings, of his grace and his mercy. But I am so appreciative of everything that he is doing in my life. God is a good God, amen? No matter what we go through, God is an awesome God. He's still a good God. Even in our challenges, he's still good. When we're faced with challenges, he doesn't allow those challenges to destroy us. So we are tried sometimes, but not to our destruction, not to our demise. Trials come by to make us strong they are designed to develop us amen you can't build muscle mass without having a little resistance amen and so these trials come to build our spiritual muscles or our spiritual faith because the more we go through the more god brings us through the stronger we are in the faith to believe that god is still able to keep us no matter what we encounter amen and I'm so glad for that. Second Chronicles chapter 7. I really enjoy having the opportunity to be able to share with you the things that God lays on my heart. And I know that I'm not the only one that God speaks to. Um, there are some folks that you haven't heard from that God is speaking to and sharing things with. And I think that's pretty awesome. That's all part of our testimony. Amen. And hopefully God will continue to develop us all so we can begin to share those things with others. The Bible says we overcome by the words of our, right? So guess what? Like I told y'all before, your testimony matters. What God is telling you, it means something. And I'm pretty sure it's for somebody else other than just yourself. Amen? Y'all believe that? Uh, Y'all act like y'all don't believe that. Come on now. If God's given it to you, it's for a purpose. Y'all believe that? Yeah. All right, now. <laughs> we can't allow the enemy to defeat us. And part of us overcoming is to open our mouths and share our testimony. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. This is one of my favorite scriptures. Because I believe this is at the core of establishing a relationship with God. This is where the rubber meets the road, if you will. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray... And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Look at what he says in here. He says, humble yourself. What else? Pray. Seek what? And whose face are we talking about? Right? Not your your friend, your best buddy, your best pal, 
right? Seek his face, right? And then what? Turn from their wicked ways. So we got four requirements. Y'all see that, right? He says, then, there's the result, will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I think it's important to recognize the requirement in the beginning and then look at the result. So he says, first and foremost, if we do those four things, if my people do these four things, be humble, pray, seek after my face, and in order to seek his face, you got to do what? Turn from your wicked ways. He says, then will I hear. Okay, so first thing to understand, if we, it's, it's really, we're not doing any good for these folks that we witness to if we are encouraging them to pray without repentance because God is not going to listen to a soul that's not willing to repent. So the statement I've made before about God does not hear a sinner's prayer, if you are involved in sin and you don't plan on not sinning, you are wasting your time praying. Right? But if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, part of the reason why things don't change in a sinner's life. Now, let me clarify something, because we're talking about the plan of salvation right now. But let me clarify something. A sinner is a person who... All right? Pretty easy, right? A sinner is a person who sins. That's why we don't believe in that term, once saved, always saved. You can have the Holy Ghost and still be living in sin. It shouldn't be. But you can be. Still living in sin. But if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves, pride is one of the biggest things that keep people from really experiencing a powerful relationship with God. Pride. You can't turn to God and rely on God and rely on yourself at the same time. So he says, humble yourself. Unfortunately, what we're up against, a lot of what you see in the world today is a result of pride. Remember we talked, you know, part of repentance is to do what? Go to someone and, and, and say, I'm sorry, right? That's part of it. But if I'm filled with pride, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to be motivated to do that. I'm not even going to get to that point. So I could have done you wrong and I could have, I know I did you wrong. Well, because I'm so full of myself, I'm okay. I justify myself. And so as a result, I don't feel the need to come and make amends. I don't feel the need to apologize to you because I'm justified in my actions. 
That's why you can have folks that, you know, commit murder and everything else, and they sit on that trial and sit there big as day and try to justify themselves. They feel justified in their actions. Even though it was wrong, they feel justified in their actions. Why? Because of pride. And that's why you got folks that will come to the house of God and leave in the same condition, not changed, because they have somehow justified themselves where they are. They did not come to repentance. They didn't turn from what they were doing. And as a result, they have left in the same condition. They were not changed. And sometimes these are folks that get an emotional feel and confuse that with a divine anointed touch from God that actually changes their lives. I can leave feeling good emotionally. That's a, that was the result, the residue that kind of impacted my life, but there was nothing that really changed inside of me. In this particular passage of scripture, this Solomon was praying, he built the temple, and he prays to God, he wants God to accept this temple. When you look throughout what was happening prior to this. And so in this passage is a promise of healing and deliverance that is preceded by a demand for repentance. That is what that first part is really talking about. God is basically saying my people need to repent. Second Peter 3 and 9. And I will refer to the Amplified Version for the next passage of Scripture. But Second Peter uh, chapter 3 and 9, we've heard this one many times. Right? <laughs> Passages mentioned this right before we started. Discipleship class. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word. Isn't that the truth? Why? He's not willing that any should perish. If it were, if God wanted to, he could have wiped us out a long time ago. None of us deserve to be here. We don't. But many of us will convince ourselves and justify ourselves to somehow believe that we do deserve to be here. But we don't. But he's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish or be destroyed. That is not his desire. God is not the type of God that will bring everything into his existence just to destroy it. Everything God does is developmental. It's constructive. But that all should come to repentance. So look at what he says. I'm, he's not willing that any should perish. In order to not be destroyed, you got to start with what? Can't get around it. So you see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. Repentance has always been a requirement of God. You want to have a relationship with him? It started with repentance. I, you know, I, I wonder sometimes what would have happened if Adam and Eve would have responded by repenting for what they did in the first place. 
I often wonder that. But the Bible never says that they did. So here we are today. And God's message is the same. You want to have a relationship with me? I want to have a relationship with you, but you got to start with repentance. I didn't do you wrong. You did me wrong. But I'm waiting on you. Isn't that something? He is long-suffering. He's looking at us. He says, man, the stench of sin is on my people. And even after I've gone to the extent of making a way for them to be saved, to be restored, to be redeemed, some of them are still choosing, but I'm going to still give them an opportunity to get it right. Long-suffering to us, but not willing that any should perish. So for those who keep putting God on trial, my question is, if you really want God to be who he is, then you shouldn't be here. You really want to charge God. If we can charge God for anything, it's given us too many chances. But I love the fact that God is long-suffering. He's just. You can't fault God for anything that went wrong. Other than the fact that he gave us the choice and we were irresponsible. And we brought about the mess that we're in today. I wish that we as a civilization could really come to terms because that's part of that's part of repentance. Come to terms and realize that it's not God that's the problem. We are a part of the problem and we can't blame it on the devil because the devil can't make us do anything. This is putting life back into perspective, right? got to look at stuff the way it's the responsibility ultimately falls on us stop blaming the devil stop giving him credit and praise because he don't deserve it god has given us an ability a power to choose and he didn't leave us hanging he paved the way he showed us how we can establish reconnect and continue a relationship with him. This is part of the good news. Good news starts out us recognizing the wreckage that we've become. And then ultimately recognizing where God is trying to bring us. He wants to restore us. So yes, in our condition in sin, we are a mess. But God is not willing that we should be destroyed in that mess. But in order for that to change, we've got to come to repentance. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. I'm going to read an amplified version, if you don't mind. Sometimes I like to refer to the amplified version. I don't get, too, I don't get into too many other versions. Some of them start deviating, but I like how sometimes... They just, you know, kind of expand what the scripture is saying. It says, yet I'm, I am glad now, not because you were pained, but because you were pained into repentance and so turned back to God. For you felt a grief such as God meant you to feel, 
so that in nothing you might suffer loss through us or harm for what we did. In other words, my understanding, we did not provoke you. We did not pain you. We did not cause any grief toward you. You turned because of the grief that you experienced from a godly perspective. So that's what he says in verse 10. For godly grief and the pain God has permitted to direct produce a a repentance that leads and contributes to salvation and deliverance from evil. And it never brings regret, but worldly grief. The hopeless sorrow that is characteristic of the pagan world is deadly breeding and ending in death. So, again, he's saying godly sorrow. Y'all know in the King James Version, godly sorrow worketh repentance. Repentance is much greater than remorse or regret. And I want to talk about that regret part in a little bit. But repentance is much greater than remorse or regret. Now, a murderer may regret getting caught in their act of violence. An adulterer may regret getting caught in the act of adultery. But it does not necessarily mean that they have a desire to change their attitude, their thoughts, or their behavior. I'm just sorry I got caught. The next time I do this, I'm going to do things a little bit different so I don't get caught. But I don't intend to change. Right? The moment we come in contact with the truth of God's word, we become responsible, as that word again, for making a decision. If we choose to receive this truth, doesn't mean you're going to understand. You know, some people make the mistake of, well, you know, I'm going to make sure I go and I I get the whole Bible, you know, before I. You may not get everything right away. We talked a little bit about this last week. I believe in the scripture, it talks about the people in uh, in Berea were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. Why? Because they accepted the word. With all readiness, then they went back and searched the scriptures. In other words, listen, we understand that this is the word of God. We accept the fact that this is God's word. We may not understand it, but we accept it. Now, I'm not talking about the words of man. We expound, we elaborate, we give you what we believe God has given us, you know, the things that we understand. But the word of God does not change. So you may not have every thought recorded from what I'm saying this morning, but you have the word of God. We talk about the subject of repentance. You know, the scripture is telling us that we need to repent. Right. Accept the word of God. Because once you accept it, you consider it valuable. Most of us won't accept anything that we don't consider valuable. You remember back when we talked about how the mind works, the whole, you know, that's all, that all ties in. You're receiving information, right? And you hold on to the information that you consider to be valuable. Well, guess what? If you consider that information to be valuable, chances are you're going to do something with it. Which means it will cause something else to take place in your life. Y'all with me? 
So I've received the word of God. I accepted it. I acknowledge that this is valuable to me. Now, look what happens. You receive the truth. God gives us the faith to believe in it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing. You can't get faith on your own. Faith comes from God. That's where it starts. So when you hear the word of God, you accept the word of God, you say, you know what, I acknowledge this is, this is all right right here. This is something for me. Something's going to begin to happen. God's going to give you faith. You know, the Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall. There is a process that takes place once you become exposed to the truth. The same thing happens in the judicial system. Every time they bring it out information, you know, eventually the truth comes out. And the juror or the jury, they're over on the side listening to the information. Once they're able to identify the truth, they're able to make a determination. They've accepted the information that they received as valuable and they were able to make a determination based upon that. Is this making sense? Okay, God gives us the faith to believe in what we have heard, the truth. Now, through faith, we can hope in the invisible and eternal things of God. Because this is what faith really, this is the essence of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, right? That's what the scripture tells us. It's not about the temporal. Faith has everything to do with what you can't see. We hope towards salvation. We don't know, other than what's in the scripture, we don't know anything about heaven. We hear people talk about heaven, but we've never been there yet. We've never seen God face to face, but we know he exists because of what he's doing. This is why it's so important to tell your testimony. You can debate theology all day long, but one thing they can't argue with you is your own personal experience. That's why I don't get some folks. I just don't entertain it. I just start talking about what God has done in my life. I can tell you this. When you start trying to go down that rabbit hole of of debate. Let me redirect this path right now. Let me tell you what God has done for me. You can go on and believe what you want to believe. But I know what God has done for me. And that. You can't take away. Tell it in every conversation. I guarantee you it will end the conversation. There's no more argument. They can accept it or reject it, but that's where they're left at. Debates, you can go all day long. But you can't take away from what God has done for me. when we begin to look through the eyes of faith, we begin to clearly see the truth and reality of our fallen condition. God, in essence, reveals to us where we are. This grief that we was talking, that Paul was talking about, he allows you to see sin the way he sees sin. 
When you see sin the way he sees sin, that's why the scripture talks about when Peter, you know, he said, repent, be baptized, everyone. We're going to get there. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, not just the ones you committed, but the remission of sin, period. But before that happens, this is why we do this the way we do it. When we talk, when we encourage people to repent before you get baptized, I mean, aside from the fact that Peter said it that way, what good does it do to try to get your sins removed if you don't even have any godly remorse for them in the first place? If you're not trying to let them go, then getting baptized is only coming back up in the same condition. Y'all with me? He allows us to see the reality of our fallen condition. As a result, we become compelled to repent and turn away from unrighteousness and toward godliness. And I believe there is a, I can't remember the language, but that word repent in the language that I used to know. I didn't know the language, but I knew what language it was. That was a command in their army, which meant about face. So when they would say repent... In the U.S. Army, we give the command about face. Right? Well, in that army, it was repent. And it meant the same thing, to about face. That's not a 360-degree term. <laughs> I heard folks use that before. It's 180. You're not completing that other half. Amen? Turn away from unrighteousness and toward godliness. This process can also be referred to as conviction. I had this conversation before with some folks, and there is a difference between conviction and condemnation. Some folks confuse that. Conviction is the attempt of God to get you to come to repentance. Allowing you to see where you are. That hurts, right? No one wants to see anything wrong with themselves, but when God allows you to see that, it's out of love so that you understand what you need to turn away from. That's conviction. According to Merriam-Webster, conviction is defined as the process of convincing a person of error. Didn't I just say that? Or of compelling the admission of a truth. Where am I really? I'm in sin. Yeah, remember that uh, the parable that Jesus told between the two, the publican and the sinner. Publicans praying, he's like, "Man, I did all this stuff." We talked about this a couple weeks ago, or a few months ago. I, you know, I, I gave my tithes. I did all this. I come to church, you know, every Sunday. I'm there at church, you know. Uh, I go to all the events. I do all the charities, you know. I'm good to go. To me, that translates, God, I'm doing you a favor by being here. Look at me. Look at what I have done. Let me give you, let me pull out my resume. Let me show you my, my rap sheet here. Show you what I've been up to. Let me remind you, just in case you didn't know, Lord. But it goes even further because by making that proclamation and having that approach to God, you're in essence saying, I did this of my own accord. This wasn't you, God. You didn't put in on this. This was me. 
Look at what I did. I, 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 me, me, me. Isn't it amazing we have all these I devices? The world is coming more and more about I, I, I. Don't be like the world. I'm not saying you can't have no iPhone or iPad because I have one here. But I know what I have is because what God has allowed me to have. And I use it for his glory. Amen. So don't go out here thinking I'm preaching against iPads and iPhones, but it's the concept behind it. It's your mindset. If you're not careful, your whole world can be centered around I and me. But when you come to repentance, you recognize just how insignificant you are without God. I've heard this used in many ways before, but they say unity involves you and I. Well, in this in this sense or in this perspective, it involves God and I. You and I, Lord, that's how we can be united. It takes you and then me. You come first. On the other hand, if we choose to reject this truth, we provoke an internal war and unrest along with an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame as we struggle to deny the undeniable. We war within ourselves. Once you hear the truth, you can't erase what you have already heard. So once you have heard the truth, it's there. But now you have to reject it. So now you've got to make a conscious effort to try to deny and reject what you have already received. And in essence, that becomes an internal war within your own self. The enemy only has to do nothing but sit back and watch as you destroy yourself. Because you are making every attempt to reject God's effort to bring you towards salvation. The thing that's trying, that God is using to save you, you are using to destroy yourself. That's a bad place to be. But the guilt and the shame that you experience is not because the preacher is making you feel that way. You're bringing it upon Yourself. As a result, we are held accountable for the blatant act of disobedience and the consequence of death remains inescapable. The wages of sin is what? Choose to remain in sin by rebelling or disobeying the things of God. You are are in essence sinning. That is sin. To go against God. That is sin. It's not like the devil was an alternative. It's disobeying God. That's the essence of sin. That's why I think some people are lost because they think, well, I didn't choose the devil, so I'm not sinning. No, by your act of disobedience to God, that's sin. But you open yourself up to be influenced and controlled by the devil because you rejected God. You have no means of defense. You become vulnerable. I didn't choose the devil. 
He's not punishing you merely because you chose the devil. He's punishing you because you chose you did not choose him. That's a consequence. But he's given you the option. So whose fault is that? If we are destroyed, whose fault is that? Right? Choose ye this day whom you will serve. We have a choice. So this process is also known as condemnation. It's not that someone else is condemning you. You are condemned already because you did not receive. And I believe there's a verse in the scripture that talks about that. If you choose not to believe, you're already condemned. Not because the preacher did it. Not because some, you know, the people of God did it. But you condemned yourself. Because you said, God, I don't want that. If people really understood when they walk out of the house of God, when they walk away from a service, whatever the case may be, in the same condition that they're in, they don't want to let go of the things of the world and realize what they're choosing is death, their own destruction, I think some folks would be more willing to change. But that's what's really happening. According to Merriam-Webster, to condemn is to declare to be reprehensible, wrong, or evil, usually after weighing evidence and without reservation. Now, these are the only two options you have to choose between, to repent or to reject. At this point, regardless of the decision we make, we can never erase the impact of truth in our lives. We do not possess the ability to redeem and restore our own souls within our own power. Nevertheless, when we willfully respond by embracing God's word, he invokes his saving power and it produces a divine transformation in our lives. Nevertheless, when we willfully, excuse me, uh, this is the beginning of the journey of salvation. True repentance is the pursuit of a complete change in direction and purpose as a result of recognizing and embracing the critical truth. About our opposition against or displacement outside of the perfect will of God. Did everybody get that? I'll read it again. True repentance is the pursuit of a complete change in direction and purpose. As a result of recognizing and embracing the critical truth about our opposition against or displacement outside of the perfect will of God. When we truly repent, we receive God's forgiveness. God is the only one who qualifies and has the power to pardon our sins. Now, here's two reasons that I can give, or, you know, there's others, but here's two main reasons why I believe the validity of that statement, that God is the only one who qualifies. First of all, God is the creator of all living things. The original design of humanity was perfect and sinless. Nevertheless, We chose to become contaminated with sin through the act of disobedience. The presence of sin is offensive to God because it reflects a totally different image than what he designed us to be. So he's the designer. He's the master designer. By what we did, we altered the design. We did it. But who's the master designer? Right? So that's one reason. The other thing is God is absolutely 
holy, righteous, and without sin. Truly there is no one else like him. The only way for God to sin would be for him to defy and reject himself. That means he has to cancel out himself. That's the only way he could sin. That's impossible. This is, I just said it. The entire character, personality, and essence of his being is ultimately righteous and holy. That is his entire makeup. Every strand of DNA, if you will, spiritually, is holy and righteous. So he can't sin. He can't even be tempted with sin. The double braided cord of repentance and forgiveness represents the core of a divine relationship between the soul of man and the spirit of God. Overall, the ministry of reconciliation begins with the authentic repentance and divine forgiveness. So I look at it like a rope. You know, you, you see the big ropes, right? This is how I think of it. In those ropes, it started with a single thread. When you start putting threads together, as you start putting them all together, you start building, the rope becomes stronger. Repentance is at the center of this rope. You can't even have a rope if you don't start with the thread of repentance. Repentance, but then you get forgiveness God is adding to this rope. And as your relationship grows with God, that rope becomes stronger. What does that rope represent? The connection between you and God. That's that's just my little analogy, if you will. The stronger the rope, the less likely, likely it is that you become disconnected from God. And in order to get to that core of the rope... You're going to have to cut it. Because after so long, that rope becomes so thick. The only way, the easiest way to get to that, the, the center of that rope is to cut it. What am I getting at? Let you go back to sin and not be in repentance. And guess what? You just disconnected yourself from God. So you took all that time to build that rope. And because you went back to sin, it's just that simple. It's just that easy to become disconnected from God. Y'all all right? This all right? That's just my analogy, y'all. I think about those big, thick ropes. I'm like, man, you can't just break that apart. But you can destroy it from the inside once you get rid of repentance. All right. Let me move on so I can try to get to this other part here. Repentance of sin is significant, is a significant part of God's plan of salvation. God anticipates the opportunity to express his mercy and grace by applying his forgiveness to our lives. However, without water baptism in the only name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the contamination of sin still remains. So while God pardons us, There still has to be something to remove sin from our lives. All right, so let me try to give this analogy real quick. I got five minutes. You come in contact. Let's just say someone comes in and they just look dirty. They smell bad. And they come and they sit right next to you. 
They smell like alcohol. They smell like cigarette smoke. They smell like funk. They smell like all kinds of stuff. And, and then they just look dirty. And they come sit right next to you. Now, I'm not going to ask anybody because I don't want to put nobody on the spot. But I'm pretty sure that there are some folks who are going to automatically think you need a bath. No. As you know, we spiritual minded, so we don't think like that. (laughs) Probably one of our initial thoughts is you need a bath. Now, here's the deal. We take that individual and you put them underwater in the condition that they're in. And you bring them out. What have we accomplished? Nobody knows how long that individual was in that condition. But I'm pretty sure when they came out of the water, there wasn't too much that changed. You just wet, but you still smell bad. I'm going somewhere with it, so y'all just, I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm just giving, look, when I was growing up, this is what we saw. We saw people coming in like that. Coming out the streets looking all kinds of ways. And to, and to make sure that we were staying focused, we just continue to praise God and, you know, just thank God for sending a soul in. Yes, we probably initially thought you need to take a bath or you need to put some more clothes on or whatever the case may be. But ultimately, thank God, now they're here. Another soul looking for something, looking for a way out of their mess. So here's the deal, though. They went, they got wet, they came out, not much has changed. They just was wet. In order for them to truly be cleansed, you need some kind of cleaning agent or solvent. Right? Soap. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing Suave. Y'all remember the old one, Dove, Olay, Iris Spring. Yeah, you got some of them hard soaps too. Those of y'all that have been doing mechanic work, y'all know about them hard soaps. But the, it was a cleaning agent to remove the dirt and the grime. And then, oh, by the way, we got so fancy, some of them have fragrances to them. See, you can come out smelling better. Now we got men's fragrances and women's fragrances. Before, just you just got what you got. One bar of white soap. You ain't got no fragrance, but it'll get you clean. You better put some perfume or cologne on. Now you got it all in one. Liquid soap. You ain't even got to work hard. Just liquid. Just put it on. Anyway. And when you come out, you should be clean and you should be smelling better. Well, what made the difference? The cleaning agent. What am I getting at? 
you can baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost all day long. Those are just titles. But you got to use the name of Jesus because that is the cleaning agent for the soul. Otherwise, they won't come out in the same condition. What Jesus was referring to in Matthew 28 and 19 was not merely saying use the titles. That's why Peter clarified in Acts 2.38. Peter was there when Jesus gave the command. But if you know anything about English, Matthew 28 and 19, Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father. If it were more than one name or if he wanted you to use the titles, he would have said in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Ghost. Because those would be the three names. But he says one name that covers the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Look in Isaiah 7, 14. Look in Isaiah 9 and 6. It still talks about the name. It says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Matthew 28, or excuse me, Matthew 1 and 21 talks about the name. He says his name shall be called. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. It's in that name. And I believe in Acts it says that neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name given unto heaven among men whereby we must be saved. It's in the name that Peter spoke about in Acts 2.38, repentance and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the name. There should be no ambiguity or confusion. That's the name of the Father. That's the name of the Son. That's the name of the Holy Ghost. It's in the name of Jesus. That's the cleaning agent. Guess what? If you don't use the name of Jesus, you can call on all kinds of fathers and sons. But there's only one that died on the cross and bled. And because of his blood, we can be redeemed today. His blood washes away our sins. I was explaining this to my children uh, just the other week. When God looks at us, when we're baptized into Christ, or when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ, are we not? So then what happens is God looks at us, he no longer sees the sin, but he sees the payment of sin, which is the blood of Jesus Christ upon us. That's how we can stay in his presence. As long as we remain under the blood of Jesus. So you got to use the name of Jesus. Because when you speak that name, you invoke the power behind that name. When you speak that name, there's things that begin to change. And if you're speaking it in your life, you say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. You're now baptized. And know ye not that so many were you baptized were baptized unto his death. You have gone down the old man, the Bible tells us, and you come up. If any man be in Christ, this all right. Mm. You come up a new creature. Got to use oh, I done went over my time. So when you baptize, baptize you using the name of Jesus. You can say Father, Son, and Holy Ghost if you want to. You feel like it's necessary. You want to be in, in, in accordance with the Scripture. But I'm just clarifying to you that in order to be in accordance with the Scripture, you got to use the name of Jesus because that's what He was talking about. That's why we baptize in the name of Jesus. Repentance, God forgives us, and then he washes us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Let's take a break and get ready for our dynamic service in Jesus' name.